This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're joined now by the mayor of Belleville, Neil Ellis. Neil, thank you. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for being here. And good morning, Ben. Thanks for having me on. I cannot imagine that when you decided to run for office that you ever thought that you would be dealing with a crisis like this. Uh, no, and I, I uh, was mayor uh, eight years ago, and uh, it was a lot easier run eight years ago to the situation we have now. Give our listeners a lay of the land. Talk to us about the extent of this crisis in your town. Well, in the first week of November, we uh, in November we had 90 overdoses in a week, and uh, all communities are having them around us. And I, you know, this is an issue across cities. Uh, last week or first week of February, uh, that's when it really hit home when our emergency services were taxed. We had, uh, I believe, 13 overdoses in an hour, and uh, we had to pull ambulance and call personnel in. Uh, this isn't going to get any better, and you know, I'm calling uh, basically out governments to say uh, this is an Ontario provincial government. They're in charge of uh, housing, mental health and uh, homelessness and this is basically uh, i feel more of a download to municipalities which uh don't have the budgets and we have to run a balanced budget and we just keep picking up uh you know things in that the province have uh have failed on and this is a uh, successive government so it's not just this one but uh, mr mayor it's not just the funding that you don't have i have to assume that a town like belleville doesn't have the expertise to deal no, with we- this you don't have the, I, I i'm comparing it to uh, a city like Vancouver that has been dealing with its own drug issues for decades. They have built up an infrastructure to at least mitigate these issues. You, I have to assume you don't have that. No, and we don't have it. And uh, I think, you know, for mental health, there's over 600 patients that are, are waiting on a waiting list. We don't have the housing, uh, social housing geared to income, transitional beds. And that's all one puzzle from going from uh, detox, uh, getting them into housing and the wraparound services, and then getting back in society. And when you look at it, not all uh, unhoused people are suffering from uh, mental illness and the three things I, I said. There's people like you and I that have had bad luck. And we need to encompass everybody and we need to to get to the root of the problem. And all three governments have got to work together. But uh, the first step is the hub that we uh, have purchased uh, and we're John Howard that we partnered with. And we need to get this hub up and running. And it'll have uh, where they are now at the church. It's outgrown. It's not purpose built. This will be purpose built, wraparound services, uh, mental health. And uh, we'll have nurse practitioners on site. And it'll be open 24-7 for uh, anybody that's, uh, that's on house. It's going to have our warming center in it for the winter. And it's going to have a food kitchen, showers, and, and all the necessities. Uh, with the number that we have now, we're around uh, 200 that are on house. And all communities like Peterborough and, and Kingston and, and Bancroft, they're in the same situation. And, um, you know, and when you look at it, there are a lot of the, the, the eastern Ontario and, and across Canada, they just, like you said, don't have the uh, physical resources and don't have the capital resources to invest in, in a building and things like that. Uh, Mr. Mayor, what is the mood in Belleville? I have to assume that with so many overdoses, almost everybody knows somebody affected by this crisis. Um, and, and the mood, I guess, is people are losing patience. And, and I see this, uh, you know, yesterday in, in the press release that we, uh, you know, we offered the, the or we asked for 50 percent funding to, to build the building and onward uh, operating. And, the, you know, the answer is not coming. So we're going to have to uh, do it ourselves. And uh, our budget is in a week at the end of February. 
And what I'm going to ask council is let's fund the two million ourselves. It'll probably be uh, just over two million, and we can't uh, wait for the province. And I said that in my press release yesterday. Uh, I asked uh, basically for this ask in uh, May, uh, in November after our overdoses, we sent a, a proclamation or a, uh, actually a motion to the Ontario government, to our MP and the MPs that have this file, and we cried for help. Then we we said the same. It's un- unsustainable. We're taxed, and there's a. Uh, you know, with an overdose right now, they go to the hospital, they're checked out, and they have nowhere to go. So there's not transitional beds uh, and transitional housing. And, you know, we need to get the surface uh, or settled and, and get housing is, is, a, is a main thing. And uh, when you talk to people or, or experts like the Canadian Alliance of, of uh, Homelessness or Housing, I believe that's their name, uh, they feel the same way. It's housing first and then take care of the issues that uh, people have. So, Mr. Mayor, before we let you go, your position is we are going to pay for this one way or another. And if we have to foot the bill as a municipality, we will. We're going to, yes. But we have to do it now. Yes, it, it, it's an emergency. It needs to be moved. As I say, uh, it's not a proper built uh, facility, whether that's washrooms and showers at the church. And I, I hate to say it, next year there's going to be more on house people due to the economy and, and due to... Uh, you know, maybe bad luck or, or again, mental illness and and, uh, drug addiction. Neil Ellis, Mayor of Belleville, we wish you the very best of luck. We wish you steadfast determination, and I hope that this all gets resolved as quickly and uh, as as possible. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Take care. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's News, Today's Talk. 640 Toronto. Time now for a conversation with Sabrina Nanji. And uh, welcome to the show, Sabrina. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's talk about Doug Ford. And he is refusing to apologize over wage capping legislation. So talk to me. Talk to me about Bill 124. So this is that infamous wage capping legislation that held most public sector workers to an increase, a a wage increase of one percent per year for three years, which Anybody uh, who hasn't been living under a rock knows that cost of living um, is sky high right now. And for a lot of folks, you know, that that really wouldn't cut it. And the unions uh, have been battling with the Ford government in the courts. Ontario's highest court just deemed this unconstitutional and, and the Ford government is planning to repeal it. But uh, Marit Stiles, official opposition NDP leader, isn't about to let, uh, you know, the Ford government take an easy, easy way out on this. They kicked off question period, uh, you know, holding the Ford government's feet to the fire on this, demanding that he apologize to nurses, teachers. um, And, you know, he's got some explaining to do because a lot of critics have pointed to Bill 124 and that wage cap as worsening our staffing crisis in our healthcare system. Doug Ford, uh, you know, he appeared unfazed, sort of bypassed the criticism as as expected and, you know, responded by saying the NDP doesn't care about cost of living and, and gave, you know, a, a a list of previous healthcare funding announcements, but certainly it's a uh, it was a raucous first day back uh, at the session. MPPs haven't been here for question period in, uh, since December, and so you know while the Ford government wants to change the channel after a year of policy backtracks and political controversies, um, I, I guess we'll have to see. It doesn't look like the NDP is is letting uh, willing to let them get an easy pass on that one. Uh, but Sabrina, the, the, this the premier has had no problem in the past uh apologizing if he has if he feels that that is politically expedient so why in this case would he 
sort of dig his heels in. Yeah, I mean, I guess technically they are backtracking on this Bill 124. They're kind of being forced to now uh, by the courts. And, you know, Ford has taken a step back and said he's not going to take this fight to the Supreme Court. They're going to repeal the legislation. Um, and and he says that, you know, Parliament should be supreme here and, and not the courts. But they're, they're willing to take this one on the chin. Uh, and, and while I think it is a good thing, at least, you know, when you hear from public sector workers, especially in healthcare. Uh, about the about this backtrack. I mean, there was already stuff happening that was kind of undoing this legislation already. I mean, a lot of unions, including teachers, had these reopener clauses in their contracts that they could negotiate a remedy in the wake of Bill 124. And so we've kind of already seen that happen on the the labor side of things. Uh, but, you know, for for the board government, they are really dealing with a credibility issue right now because they've made a steady string of policy reversals. The Green Belt, uh, dissolving Peel region, uh, you know, I, I could go on, even official plan changes that municipalities hadn't really asked for. We saw that, you know, that backtrack in yesterday's omnibus legislation. These things have created a credibility problem for the Ford government because it only works so much when you say, you know, we're listening to the experts, we've heard the feedback, and now we're changing our mind. But when you that's kind of your playbook, as the critics say, you know, it, it raises questions of, you know, is this just wasted time? And how can Ontarians really trust anything you're going to do at this point? All right, let's talk about this first day back. You said that it was uh, high octane, to say the least. Uh, and I, I want to talk about the uh, the heckling done by liberal Andrea Hazel. Uh, she she had a heck of a heck of a line. Let, let's listen to this. Mr. Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Transportation. Once again, the Conservatives are only showing up when it's convenient for them. Many of us on this side of the House have been advocating all day two-way Milton Go service for years. And the federal government offered to provide funding for this project three years ago. The minister's predecessor declined that offer. But it's obvious that this government is only reversing course on that Order. because of the upcoming by-election in Milton. It appears that the only Order. way to get this government to invest in a riding is to have the PC MPP jump ship from their caucus. Ooh. And don't get me started on how much time the Premier has spent in Mississauga since December 3rd. My Speaker, can the Minister explain Order. to the people of Milton Order. and Mississauga why they have had to wait this Question. long for the government to move forward with all the service on Milton Line? That is a pretty pointed attack at the government. Uh, can you lay that out for our, our listeners? Yeah, of course. I mean, I thought Andrea Hazel, you know, the new-ish liberal M MPP who won the by-election last year in Scarborough Guildwood, she she also won the shady of question question of the day. I mean, she's accusing the Tories of only moving on two-way all-day go transit for Milton um, because there's a by-election coming up. As we know, Parm Gill, the former conservative red tape reduction minister, is jumping over into the federal arena and running uh, for the, the federal conservatives. Um, and Andrea Hazel is essentially accusing the Ford government of only... Uh, you know, improving transit in Milton because there's an election coming up. And she's also sort of hinting at um, the fact that Bonnie Crombie, the new liberal leader, 
clearly uh, has Doug Ford shaking in his boots a little bit. Uh, she she mentioned that the premier has been around in Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie's turf, where she was formerly mayor since December 3rd. Bonnie Crombie took the leadership on December 2nd. And Ford has taken uh, you know almost every opportunity he gets to come out swinging against Bonnie Crombie. He's called her the queen of the carbon tax. He said that you know, there's not a tax that she doesn't she doesn't like. Um, Bonnie Crombie has, you know, called that a, a stunt and a distraction uh, from, you know, Doug Ford's own fair share of controversies. But when she was pressed at Queen's Park yesterday on where she stands on Ottawa's carbon levy, you know, she said she's still wanting to consult before she makes a, a formal position on it. But she really couldn't say, you know, what that consultation will look like. A lot of critics are saying this was a missed opportunity for her to just sort of come out swinging against uh, a tax that's that's highly unpopular right now. I mean, the federal liberals have had to rebrand it. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are coming out uh, against this tax right now. But Bonnie Crombie is still making up her mind. Well, Sabrina, I think what, what that question demonstrates is even if the liberals don't get a whole lot of time to ask questions at Queen's Park. If you ask a good laser-focused question, it will get attention. And that, that, that was a masterclass in asking a question and holding the government to account. So well done for her. Sabrina, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're joined now by Dr. Lori Turnbull, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for being here. Uh, What do you make of the Prime Minister's early assessment of where the blame should lie? He wants to keep this in the realm of the public service and not have it come over to the political side, which is going to be very difficult, obviously. And I, and I mean, the, the opposition is going to be very motivated to try to associate the government, to associate ministers, Trudeau himself, with some kind of incompetence around, you know, why this why this thing went the way it did. And so there will be there, there will be a push from the opposition side to blame the minister, to cite ministerial accountability. Where was the supervision and all the rest of it? But for Trudeau, he's going to want to put this in this in the context of this was a very difficult time. Public servants maybe felt rushed, felt pressured, made, you know, and if they made the wrong decisions, they will be held to account. But this the idea for Arrive Can didn't start in a public service. It started in the government. Exactly. And so, I mean, what what I think the liberals will continue to say is that the issue wasn't the the problem wasn't the, the idea of Arrive Can. The problem was the way the procurement process was handled and the, the lack of checks and balances, the possibility of a, of a preference made for this this organization, um, the possibility that the proper rules weren't followed, the pro- proper documentation isn't there. And so he will, Trudeau will try to make this an administrative problem and probably make, try to make people bored with it, right? Like this is all about procedure. This is not political, nothing to see here. Uh, well, I mean, that, that's a tactic, I suppose. But the fact that the, a liberal prime minister is turning on the public service is if I if I'm if I'm members of that organization, I'm talking to my union today. I'm saying, what the heck is going oh, 100%. on? Oh, yeah, it feels it feels like crap if you're a public servant. Right. Because, I mean, you don't necessarily I mean, if if the government, if the political government is right. Right. And they had nothing to do with this. And this was a this was a public service thing. Nobody's expecting elected ministers to take some personal responsibility for what could be inappropriate behavior on account of a public servant. Like 
that that's not what ministerial responsibility is about anyway. But yeah, you're right. I mean, like if it feels to, to a public servant, like the the political side is painting some kind of a brush here and is suggesting that there, oh, this kind of happens sometimes in the public service. Like I think the prime minister wants to be very careful about that and be very specific. You know, if there's, if, if there's any sense that the public service is just going to be blamed for every misstep that happened during COVID, that's not going to wash. Like people are not going to, you know, the people are going to want to see him take some kind of accountability because ultimately we do have a ministerial ministerial responsibility system. We do have an expectation as voters that ministers will make sure things are working right and not just say, oh, sorry, you know, that's somebody else's fault. I'm talking with Dr. Lori Turnbull, Associate Professor of Political Science at Dalhousie. We're talking about the Prime Minister's assessment of where the blame should lie. This is still early on. The investigations have not happened yet. But look, if these investigations happen and they and they uh, discover, yes, sure, there were some procurement issues on the public service side. But if the investigations turn up uh, that there was massive incompetence on the government side as well, what happens then? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. We are at the early stages of this. We We've learned a lot from the Auditor General's report. But this is going to keep going. The story is going to keep unraveling. There's more questions to be answered about how this happened. And I think um, even if there's there's nothing whatsoever found on the political side and there was no political involvement, I think that in itself is a, is something to be to be mined and to to say, well, what, where was you know where was the supervision? Where why didn't anybody bring this to the minister's attention? And did they? And if they did, when was that? And at what financial point? Right, like. And ultimately, if there's going to be major changes to the procurement process in the public service, which has long been a subject of, of suggestion for reform, it's very complicated. It's, you know, there's all kinds of things wrong with it. If that's going to happen, it's not going to be without political leadership. And so I think the longer this thing goes on, you know, the more, and, and rightly so, the opposition will want to push on the, the ministers for answers because that's, they're the ones who can do something about it. Well, Professor, I, th- I think one thing that can't get lost in this narrative is it was not unanimous that Canada even needed an Arrive Can app. This was there were there were voices uh, pushing back against the government saying we don't need this. This is a waste of time and money and resources at a time where we don't have a lot of time and money and resources. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, it's, it, aside from every, all the other problems that we can see here, or we can see evidence of and the report alludes to. I can remember at the time people complaining about Arrive Can, the Arrive Can app and how it. As you say, did we need it at all? It, when it when people were trying to use it, they were having all kinds of problems. It wasn't doing what it was designed to do to begin with. And so then, when you kind of roll back, you know, peel back the layers and realize that, as, in addition to all of that, there were these these issues that that led to an unbelievable cost for this thing that totally spiraled out of control. So the value for money aspect is hard for people to swallow, you know, given given everything, given. The housing crisis, given the affordability crisis, it's awful to hear about something like this that ballooned out of control from a cost perspective at a time where people are really hurting. Uh, Professor, I, I, there's a lot to unpack in, in that 45-second clip of the prime minister. The first thing that stood out to me, and we've talked about it already, was uh, the, the, the public service uh, situation. But the other thing is how it seems like, from a narrative standpoint, he's trying to link ArriveCan to... We were trying to save people's lives. That's how serious yeah. it was. And I don't think you can get from there, from, from Arrive Can to saving people's lives. 
Yeah, it's interesting. And he, he does seem to be trying to evoke this narrative of this was an emergency situation and we were absolutely up against the wall and we were doing this for you to protect you. And, um, you know, he, he, he is going to make that argument and he's going to try to pull this sort of emergency cover to justify that things were happening very quickly. During COVID, the government was taking all kinds of quicker measures around typical procedures to try to deliver things more quickly. CERB is the prime example of where the government did not do all of the usual verifications up front to make sure that somebody was qualified before they received that payment. They basically said, one, two, three, here's your three questions. If you say yes to them all, you get CERB. And if you're not supposed to get it, we'll come around and get it back from you later. And so I think he's trying to... to apply that same logic to this. And I don't know that people are going to buy it. And I think, uh, honestly, like at this point, people want to forget about COVID and forget about the kind of stress that they felt at that time. And many people are still feeling it because of the financial implications. Well, that's what, that's what I was going to say, Professor, is that, yeah, we all yeah. want to forget it, but we're still paying for it. And to, to, yeah. to learn that, A, this thing was supposed to cost uh, a, you know, a, few, a few thousand dollars and ended up costing millions of dollars. We don't know, know exactly how much. But on top of that, one of the groups involved in putting this fiasco together uh, sort of made out with a, almost a quarter billion dollars as well. It, it seems like these are sort of two um, uh, crises right next to each other, two scandals right next to each other. But they're for all intents and purposes, they're the same scandal. Well, that's the thing. And I think that's why this thing has has the legs that it does is because there are different ways this is going to break down. There are different storylines in here. It's not something that the prime minister or the government can kind of close off and cut off with one line. There's a couple of different things that can be pursued in terms of potential wrongdoing. And so that's why I think this is, we're going to be hearing about this for a long time. But is there danger for the conservatives to overplay this? Uh that's an interesting question. I really like that question. Um, and I think, I think this, I think that you can see Pierre Polyev kind of trying to make an argument that puts this type of thing on an arc, on a story arc with things that are typical of the liberal government, right? So like at this point, he's trying to, oh yeah, okay, this is one more example of how the, the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, the Lib Trudeau government, they can't run anything. They're incompetent. We end up losing money. They, they're too, too, what does he say? You know, like they're too expensive, not worth it, not worth the cost, like that kind of thing. So this fits into a narrative he's already built, built. I think the risk is what happens when that horse has been dead a while yeah. and like they're still trying to build, you know, kind of squeeze some life out of this. Honestly, I think when you've got something like this, this kind of money, this kind of narrative, uh, there, there are things to be mined here. And I think there's the public will want to have more information about this. Professor, do you think we have gotten at least uh, to the bottom of how much money is involved here so far? Like we, we had the, the original uh, cost of, of, of ArriveCan. Then we found out about the quarter billion dollars. Do you think that's it? Or do you think there's if we keep digging, we're going to find more? I don't know, because if you read the Auditor General's report, it's sort of like there's a lack of documentation. And any time there's a lack of documentation, who knows, right? Like, I mean, I, I hope there's not more wasted money, but it's not clear whether there might be other, other things to find out, particularly when they're saying, you know, it's not clear that the um, GC strategy submitted a, a, the paperwork for a certain thing, and then they're not sure, you know, what, what the process was, like what actually led to this? Why did they get all get all these contracts who you know what else was the, what, what were the alternatives and so it seems like there's anytime there's again there's missing documentation who knows what else could be there well mark saunders uh who who speaks from a position of uh you know from from his position as former chief of police says he he thinks there's criminality here 
I mean, that would be the that would be the worry, right? Is that when you see all of this stuff and and some of the language in the report is kind of like you know they're copying and pasting when it comes to the credentials and requirements for the bidding process. They're copying and pasting from the government site. Um, there seems to be a suggestion that people kind of knew each other on either side of things, and maybe the bidding process was written written specifically, you know for this company in mind, there were maybe dinners and, and social, you know, social engagements and that kind of thing, which then makes you great, you know, kind of raise your eyebrows around what was really going on here. And so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't look great at this point. Well, Dr. Lori Turnbull, thank you so much for joining us. This is uh, this is a, the story that's just going to keep, keep growing. I think. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you too. Take care. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're joined now by Omar Mosley from the Toronto Star. Omar, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So you were at the mayor's press conference yesterday. Uh, No, I reported on it virtually. Okay. And what was your take when you heard him give his lay of the land? Well, they've been pleading for help for a while now, as you mentioned, since November. And this crisis has been kind of unfolding. And he, he, he said himself, it's unfortunate in some sense that it took so many overdoses for us to get that national attention. But at the same time, he thanked the media because he knows this crisis isn't going anytime soon and, and it's going to get worse. So uh, we basically reached a point of desperation and uh, are really hoping that some help will come through. Can you give our listeners a sense of how bad the crisis is in Belleville? I, I don't think I don't think people can appreciate the numbers versus how small that town is. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean, for a you know small Ontario sized city, it's about fifty five thousand. As soon as you get there, you can you can feel sort of the tension in the community. Uh, there's definitely a rift. Uh, I spent uh, about a day there, eight hours. Uh, just over and uh, sort of going back and forth between <clears throat> the downtown. Some people are calling the epicenter of homelessness. There, which is just down the street, just down the street from sort of the downtown commercial strip, and um, you can really see it, feel it everywhere. And uh, everyone I talked to, it was the top of mind issue in their in their town. And um, yeah, you, you can just really sort of see the effects of, of the overdose, but also the the mental health crisis, the homelessness, and just how it's really become visible everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's multiple crises intersecting, in, and, and Belleville seems to be um, ground zero right now. What's, I, I think it affects what's happening in a lot of communities, though. Like, you hear the same thing about Bradford, Peterborough, and, and Belleville's gotten the attention because they had the spike due to this really bad batch of drugs going around, but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily unique. Well, that, that, that's kind of sad. <laughs> It's uh, it's a, it's definitely happening. It, it's more visible, I think, in the small towns because they don't have the resources to deal with it. Yeah. So, 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 what are they asking for, Omar? What What do they need? What are they asking for? And what is the mayor frustrated about that he because he hasn't gotten it yet? Uh, they want to see a twenty four seven hub, so basically a place where people can go and get help at any time of the day. The current drop in is not enough small church, I mean, it's a, it's a decent-sized church, but the space they have for the drop-in for vulnerable residents has definitely um, outgrown its capacity. So they want to, they want to, they have a building, they say, and they say, we want people to be able to get help at any time of the day, so that's not really spilling out on the streets. Um, they're asking for $2 million and then ongoing funding to keep it running. And uh, the province 
gave up two hundred sixty thousand dollars. We still had, uh, you know, we just we don't have two million dollars to give you right now. And that that's got to be disappointing when we've just lived through two or three years of big checks going out the door from the province, from the feds. It feels like every day there's always a new program. There's always a new project. And when, when a, a town like Belleville needs the money, this is going to be very frustrating for them. I mean, uh, 17 overdoses in 24 hours and then like 23 overdoses over the next two days. I'm not really sure what it takes. Um, most of those people were saved. There was one fatality. But um, like, if, if that's not a crisis, I'm not sure what is. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't really understand what the province needs before, you know, but that's at least the mayor's perspective. So, Well, let's take a listen to the mayor. He, uh, he's, when he was giving his update yesterday, he said he's not satisfied with last week's announcement or his meeting with the feds or the province. I'm not in any way disparaging or disrespecting the efforts of our provincial partners in their response to our calls for help in the past weeks. But it would be dishonest to say that we were satisfied in agreement with the announcement made last week of $216,000 in funding for the province. I mean, Omar, look, I said it off the top of the show. A city like Vancouver has been dealing with a drug crisis for, for years. They have infrastructure in place. They have experts in place. I have to assume that a town like Belleville is ill-equipped to deal with this level of, of, of this crisis. I would say that's a fair observation. Again, I'm, as I said, I'm not sure you know, how the province determines when a crisis point has been reached. Um, but certainly a, a place like Belleville is, is having greater challenges than cities like Vancouver, Toronto, just because they don't have the resources. They don't have the staff. They don't have the, the places for people to go. Omar, can I ask uh, uh, maybe a, a question that might be a, a little, um, I mean, it, 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 how do I say this? Look, uh, tourist season is coming. Prince Edward County oh. is ground zero for so many tourists, so many reasons to go uh, and enjoy that area. Belleville is in that area. Is this, is this a problem that they are trying to resolve in time for the summer? I'm not sure what the timeline is like, but what I can say is that you can feel that the city is kind of having an identity crisis in that sense because, you know, it's a gateway to cottage country, kind of this quaint, cute city that, that people love to go to. And in some cases, it feels like the business owners are, are now more concerned about their reputation than the vulnerable folks on the street. And I understand that this is a livelihood, but I'm, I'm not really sure what the end goal is and how you fix something like that, but it's clear it's on everyone's mind. And Omar, have you heard anything from Queen's Park besides it's coming, the help is coming? Uh, the local MPP said, uh, we're looking, we're looking for money. Um, he stated to the mayor, I believe his words were, he's not optimistic. And, um, you know, $2 million is not necessarily an easy ask. Um, and, and that's just sort of the first the first step, like they want to have this 24-7 hub as an immediate response, but in the long term, they're looking for more support with the detox center. They're looking for more housing, which is kind of at the heart of all of this. And uh, those are not easy acts. And as we know, there are many communities across Ontario struggling with this, and Belleville just happens to have had a really bad month. 
But, um, you know, you can only imagine what other kind of requests the province is getting from other municipalities who are struggling with the same issues. Well, Omar, if, if Belleville is the municipality that is getting the most attention right now, I, I wonder whether the, the province could, could use them as a, a test case, a, a pilot project uh, to try out innovative solutions. And if it works there, perhaps they could roll it out in other cities that are having the same problems. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, something seems like they've reached a point where they have to do something. Um, in terms of innovative solutions, there's, there's lots of uh, examples we've seen in other provinces like Alberta and British Columbia. And, um, yeah, it remains to be seen exactly how this will be tackled. But it, it seems everyone agrees that um, it, delaying it isn't really an option. Toronto Stars, Omar Mosley, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. I hope you have a good day.